Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Bible in Order, where we are chronologically going through the entire Bible in one year. Today's reading for October 22nd is Matthew chapter 18. The disciples come to Jesus asking him, what does it take to be great in the kingdom of heaven? I'm sure they were curious because Jesus had just finished telling Peter to go get a fish out of the sea open its mouth, use the coin in the fish's mouth to pay his taxes and Peter's. Jesus was performing all kinds of amazing miracles, doing really wonderful things, teaching about the kingdom of God in ways that no one had ever imagined, and yet he's still paying taxes. And now he's talking about dying. He's going to be taken and punished and imprisoned and killed. I'm sure they're trying to understand what does it look like to be great in the kingdom of heaven. It's important to note that the desire to be great is not wrong. It's something that God places within us. We all have a desire to be great. We all have a desire to make the world a better place, especially when we are children. The desire to become great or successful is only bad when it's put into practice in a twisted way, when Satan maligns it and people take advantage of other people in order to achieve that success or greatness. If you design a product or a service and you learn how to sell it and you make a lot of people happy and they're willing to pay you a fair price for your product or your service and you become very wealthy, that is a good thing. If, on the other hand, you become rich by taking advantage of people, by robbing people, by cheating people, by lying, by misrepresenting the facts, by overcharging, by selling something that is overpriced and undervalued, that's bad. That is what Satan would like us to think all rich people are like. Because he doesn't want us to become great. He doesn't want us to have large amounts of resources to fund the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. In answer to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus calls to him a small child. This child, most scholars would believe, was probably six or younger. And he teaches his disciples, if any of you desires to be great, you must become like this child. You must humble yourself. Humility is putting the needs of other people before yourself. And become like a child, a small child, a kindergartner. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. That word welcome could also be translated receives with joy. It's the same word used in Luke 2.28 when Simeon, who had been expecting the Christ child to be born, when he does see Jesus in the temple on the day he's being consecrated, he lifts him up. That word translated lifts him up is the same word receives. He lifts him up with joy and praises God. We are to receive the young believers with joy, praising God. We are not to turn them away. We are not to quench their spirit. We are not to tell them to settle down. We are not to rain on their parades. We are to be like them. We are to let their energy affect ours, bring us up, rather than let our pessimism bring them down. Think of the qualities of a little 
child, honest, really want the truth, ask a four-year-old. Have you ever noticed how little children love to make other people smile? If you ever have to wait at a public place, there's a toddler roaming around. They'll make eye contact with you. They'll smile. They'll bring you a gift of a magazine or whatever else they can find lying around. They just want to make you happy. Children have a desire to alleviate sadness in the world around them. And it's only through experience and rejection that we learn people don't want to be helped. It's often because they don't know how to be helped. But Jesus is saying, stay like a little child. And that's why in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, fall away could be translated to hinder the right conduct or thought. The Greek word is the same word that we get scandal from. It is scandalous to cause someone to stop acting like a humble, little, innocent child who just wants to drive away the sadness in the people around them. People are more motivated by fear than they are reward. We have two great fears as people, fear of failure and fear of rejection. We learn as we grow in this life that we will eventually fail. The devil whispers in our ear, give up. You can't do it. He doesn't want us to succeed, but God has placed greatness within us. God has placed the desire for a reward within us. It's human nature because God made it that way. It's not wrong to want to become great, to want to receive a reward for your hard work. That's why Hebrews 11.6 says it is impossible to please God without faith because without it, you will not draw near to God. You won't believe that he exists and you won't believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. We need to overcome our fear of failure and rejection. Any effort to get to know God in earnest is a success. There's no such thing as failure when you desire to know God if you come to Him on His terms. There is no rejection from God. He will never turn you away. It gives Him great joy when you turn to Him, when you call to Him, when you ask Him to come and help you. When you repent of your sin, it gives him great joy. He demonstrates this by saying, you have a hundred sheep, but one of them goes missing. Wouldn't you leave 99 that you have remaining to go find the one who needs you the most? Of course you would. That's how God feels about his children. How do you restore that lost sheep? The same way you would when somebody is hurting and they're sinning because of their fears being realized, their expectations not being met. Somebody is in a destructive behavior pattern because they have wounds from which they have not healed. They have let the sun go down on their anger, Ephesians 5, and they've given Satan a foothold, and now they're harming other people. Go to that person. Appeal to them in love not assuming that they're trying to harm other people. 
It doesn't have to be a big, scary confrontation. You go to the person and say, I noticed when something was said, something was done, it caused a pain response in me or in this other person. I'm not suggesting you meant to hurt anyone, but I was hurt and I love you. And I just, I don't want there to be bitterness in my heart because of something you didn't even intend. So I feel like I have to share it. If the person listens to you, you've restored the relationship. You guys are brothers or sisters once again. If they won't listen, maybe they don't take it seriously. Maybe they don't hear you. Go back with two or three other people. Listen, I love you so much. This is a little uncomfortable now because this is the second time we've spoken about this, but I don't want to harbor any bitterness and I don't want you to hurt anyone else. I don't think you want to hurt people. I don't think you're a bad person. I've brought a couple other people here just so this can be established between us. And so you'll see how serious I am about being restored to you and with you. Do you feel like this behavior is destructive? Do you feel like the words you used or maybe the way you said those words could be hurtful? Would you please consider, will you pray about this? If the person listens to you, you've restored them. You've gained your brother back. And if they won't listen to you, even with two or three witnesses there, the best thing for them is to be put out of the fellowship. Tell it to the church that meets in your home. The context of Jesus' words was the church in your home. He wasn't saying go announce it from a pulpit in front of 5,000 people. This inner circle of friends, family, your sacred faith fellowship. It's not a religious excommunication. We are supposed to submit to one another in love. And I've gone to this person once privately, once with witnesses. Their behavior is destructive. They're unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to repent. It just seems they care more about being right than they are willing to help me get over this. And therefore, I can't sit at the same table with them any longer. I forgive them. I don't want to give Satan a foothold. But I also don't want to make their life so comfortable that they won't learn from this. And so we're putting them out. They're, they're no longer welcome at my table so that they won't continue hurting other people. Hopefully they'll learn from this. The parable of the unforgiving servant comes next. All of these little paragraphs of Jesus' teaching are put here in this order because they're all so closely related. Which of you, if he has a servant who owes a million dollars and is unwilling to pay, so far behind, he's not even making payments, and the master of the house comes to the servant and says, you owe me a million dollars, you're not even trying to pay me back. I'm going to throw you into a work camp and sell off everything you own until I'm repaid. This servant is so far in debt, there's no hope of ever paying all these debts off, but they beg for mercy, and the master grants mercy. Okay, your debt's forgiven. And then the servant who has just forgiven a million dollars goes and finds another servant who borrowed a hundred dollars from him. Pay me what you owe me now. Sorry, I don't have it. Give, give me time. I will work hard. I will. No, mercy throws him into prison. 
the forgiven servant has no mercy on his brother. And when the master sees that, he'll make sure that servant is judged according to the same standard he used for his fellow servant. Be quick to forgive, friends. Be very, very careful that you're not holding grudges. It would be so worthwhile to stop right now and pray, God, expose any grudge I am holding. Show me who I need to forgive, Father, for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, that we all might become great in your kingdom. See you tomorrow.